Welcome back to KafaroCast, everyone. I am your host, Aaron Snyder. I've got Frank the Tank Peralta across from me. Frank. What's up? (laughs) (laughs) And we got a longtime friend and a really, really special guest and someone I didn't think we'd ever really have access to. I'm going to call you Leo the Lion because that's what you are on my my phone is Leo the Lion. And uh, Leo, you've worked in law enforcement, fish and game for how long? 34 and a half years. 34 years. Um, and you're retired now? I am. All right. And uh, you work over Rocky Mountain Specialty Gear part-time. I do. Time, yep, which part-time. Is, you have to see me all the time and Frank, which probably get tired of that. We all have a cross to bear. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so uh, you you and I, I had initially heard your name uh, through a mutual friend. I think you drew a goat tag. Um, That's correct. Yep. And he uh, just asked me if I knew where a goat was and- told him where I saw a decent goat and you guys went in there and killed it, didn't you? My wife and I did. Yep. Yeah. And then, uh, we met same friend, different hunt on one of his hunts. We met and then have become, you know, friends ever since. And then again, we see each other at, you know, Rocky mountain. Now you give us a little history of your, um, I guess career. You just told me you started in a fish hatchery, but, uh, kind of how you progress, uh, into the fish and wildlife as a game warden over time. Okay. Uh, first of all, I just want to say thanks for the opportunity to be here and share a little bit about my world that I did for a good part of my life. Um, it's a very special part and I actually got paid to have fun. Um, whether it was packing in the wilderness or in the middle of a metro area and, the streets of New York and Chinatown. Um, how I started, um, I kind of, I'm like the, it was Willy Wonka's golden ticket. <laughs> I was given the opportunity um, by my family to grow up in a, a ranching background and a hunting background. My grandfather hunted, my dad hunted, all my uncles hunted. Um, it was a rite of passage. It was back in the day when the hardest thing for me to see was to watch my brother and, and my family, my uncle and my grandfather and my father drive away in a 60s or 50s pickup to go deer hunting for the annual deer hunt. And I had to stay because <laughs> I was a little kid. No, you can't go. You're too young. <laughs> so I started my love of hunting and wildlife there, and it progressed into meeting a game warden when I was a little kid. He was feared in the community. He was a catch dog, and that's what we called him. And he, uh, I wore him out. Asking, wore, wore him out with questions? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, just how do you do this? And, well, how, you know, what's that? And, you know, what kind of gun do you carry? And all that sort of stuff. And his, uh, his name was Lee Cordova, and I want to mention it because he's now in his bumping 80s, and I owe my career to that man because he gave me one simple piece of advice. He said, Swasso, if you like this so much, why don't you go do it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, he coined to just do it a long time before Nike ever did. Yeah. And uh, I thought about it, and I, my background was in ranching and welding, and I was in the trades, and I applied, and over a period of time, and for me, by the grace of God, he gave me an opportunity, and I got on in the hatcheries with New Mexico Game and Fish. Now, you you were in bodybuilding, though, and fitness heavy, and you were working in – you went to California working with the, 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 the guy, the founder of Gold's Gym. Is that That's correct? correct. Yeah. yeah. This was 
back before all this was <laughs> what it is today. <laughs> you walk into Joe Gold's gym and it was a beautiful place. He made all his own equipment, but the who's who of bodybuilding was there and Arnold Schwarzenegger was there and uh, Jim Morris, who was the first black Mr. America, Mr. Universe, those kind of guys were in there. And I had the opportunity to meet Jim Morris and we became friends and I worked out and got to go to Santa Monica and work out. And so I was afforded an opportunity to start building gym equipment there, but I'd also applied for Game and Fish. And Jim knew that I was really interested in Game and Fish, and lo and behold, I got a call. Hey, come back. We're going to hire you. I had missed another opportunity because I didn't get hired the first time, and I was really pretty pissed off about it, quite frankly. But hey, you're a kid. You think you know everything. You're 20 years old. Here you are. Yeah. So you drove back home and then went and worked at a, a hatchery. Yeah, it was kind of funny. I drove back home in a 62 Ford pickup that I had built. That was my hunting rig. I would go out um, hunting and by myself in the middle of wherever I could get a tag and go hunting, but I would go archery hunting. Nobody did it then. It was early 80s, and I say nobody, nobody in my circle. Um, and one of the things that I want to talk about some today off and on is just mentorship. Yeah. Had a shop teacher. He built bows. He built trad bows. Mm -hmm. And uh, he took me on my first bow hunt in the Sandia Mountains in New Mexico. There were tons of deer outside of Albuquerque, (laughs) big bucks. And uh, he took me on my first hunt. Didn't know what I was doing. Didn't know how to shoot. Um, But through time and through mentorship, I learned it. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's crazy. So you went, you worked at a hatchery. How long did it take from the time you worked at the hatchery to you were in the field as a, you know, quote unquote, actual game warden? It took about two and a half years. And we were, I was quite fortunate at the time. There were a bunch of old game wardens. And I'm talking guys 35, 40 years on the job. Yeah. These guys were Korean veterans. Um, like Korean it, war veterans. Korean yeah. war veterans. Thank you. Um And they had been around a long time and there were really no retirement packages and the state of New Mexico came up with one and guess what happened? They all bailed, (laughs) right? (laughs) Hey, I don't got to work. I'm getting a retirement. So it made a bunch of openings and at that time, the director, his name was Harold Olson. He was a guy that had an open door policy. You could walk into his office and just sit down and talk with him. If he had the time, he'd spend the time with you. And I went in and said, hey, I can do more. I really like the hatcheries, but... I want to be a game warden. Yeah. And I'd hung around a game warden um, who was, that was his area where my hatchery was. And him and I became friends. And I wore him out um, asking him questions about being a game warden. Yeah. So I was afforded the opportunity to apply. And so I actually had to learn a, a lot about wildlife management, about wildlife law enforcement. And luckily, I had mentors around me that mentored me. So how, uh, you know, fast forward, how long before you came, became... Um, a federal game warden, and and I guess you know to to state of color or state of Oregon's different. State police and game wardens are the same thing. Now you you basically went from uh, without a bunch of spirit of total honesty. I get emails from game wardens all across the country when I say something that's potentially incorrect. But you went from let's say a regular line unit in the infantry to the Delta Force of, of Game Warden Special Forces. You went f- to inter- basically international cases to to some degree. Is that correct? It is correct. I actually was, when I became a Game Warden, which would have been in 81, 82, I slept since then, so I don't know exact dates anymore. <laughs> um, 
it, uh, I worked as a game warden in New Mexico for 11 years. Uh, two other guys had left New Mexico Game and Fish. Uh, one of them was a mentor and a training officer, and he showed up to my house in Chama. Now, I had two houses that were given to me. I had a pack string. I had great wildlife areas. It was the perfect scenario to be a game warden. Yeah. Um, it was perfect. And he came with a bottle of whiskey, sat down at my table and said, you need to come work for us. And I said, I really got a good gig here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, he said, no, you really ought to do it because they're looking for people that, that kind of are street smart and they're looking for game wardens is what they were looking for at yeah. the time. So I applied. And again, I didn't get picked up the first year. Um, I was given some really sage advice by who another one of my mentors were, Terry Gross, who is here from Colorado, retired as the SAC here in Colorado, and uh, came up to see him, my wife and I, Janelle, and he sat down with us, and we talked about the job, and I applied again, and lo and behold, I got picked up, and that would have been in 92. Yeah. Well, and you, you um, how would I put this? Me to be a UC probably doesn't go as well because um I got a big fat head. I'm for you blend, man. You do. I mean, I you, you blend in well, like, and you got a trusting face. I mean, I can see you <laughs> screwing me over. I, I mean, totally. Like, come on into my house or whatever. So, because you worked undercover forever. I mean, how many years did you work undercover? Um, my first part of my career was as a special agent. You know, doing basic investigations anywhere from contaminants in eastern Colorado with uh, oil ponds to um, electrocution cases. Uh, here in Colorado, we actually have the dubious distinction here in Colorado of prosecuting the first utility company for the take of bald and golden eagles through power lines. Um, it, it had been tackled, but not to the extent where we actually prosecuted now, a utility is that company. The cover of the book you just gave me, is that how those bald eagles were killed? Uh, yes. Okay, because I was going to say, why on earth would anyone shoot 10 bald eagles or 12 or in a row or whatever? So they're landing on the lines and a shocking the shit out of them? Right. And so it was a company in northwest Colorado that electrocuted a bird. The bird died. Power line guy comes around. He reports it. They dig a hole, put the eagle in a hole and bury it. Mm -hmm. Then somebody calls the local game warden. His name was Mark Caddy at the time, and, and with that piece of information, he called me and said, hey, they unburied the eagle and reported it to me. We looked at the, the case. We started looking at the power lines and realized that there were carcasses all over this oil field Good of Lord. raptors. Yeah. And um, we began the, the track into looking at that problem, and we actually prosecuted a utility company they paid over a hundred thousand dollars in fines and how many how many bald eagles do you think oh, they killed nationally it was hundreds it sparked a, a movement across the united states to look at our power lines there's power lines across the united states still that are not protected but the way it's and there's agents working on it right now still because it's that immense you look at our infrastructure there's power lines everywhere right yeah. and if you look at prey base where it occurs. I mean, you go out here in this part of the world, the Midwest, there's prey dog towns, there's agricultural, so it attracts prey base, then it attracts raptors. So over time, those things are all still being addressed. But uh, that's the kind of stuff that I started out doing. But uh, then I got asked to go on an undercover hunt. Yeah. Can you help? Sure. Um, 
and I got a taste for it, and I really liked it. And I thought you could really make a difference working UC, not that you couldn't in the other investigative arenas, but this was an area that really needed some attention. And I'm not the first. It started back in the 30s with a bunch of, they were called biological survey agents then, and they followed the migrations of birds from one end of the, from actually Mexico south into, or north into Canada. And they realized there was a great deal of market hunting back east. Now you, you just from the limited amount we've talked, basically have a PhD in, in just crushing large level poaching scenarios because of the, I'm going to say bandwidth, the, you guys look for the long game, right? You don't just look for the low hanging. Well, you do look for the low hanging fruit because I've been on the phone and I was the low hanging fruit before, but, um, but you, you would, uh, and I don't know how much I can, how much can we go into some of those different We'll talk about it, and I'll, I'll, we'll go down a trail, and if I can't go down any further, I'll say I can't go down any further. At what depth will you go on a gallbladder case, let's say? Um, I can go pretty deep. We did a joint case with Canada. Run it. Let's hear it. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> for example, uh, uh, obviously the gallbladder trade is still alive and thriving. Well, um, let me dive in real quick okay. to give you an idea. When I lived in Washington, mm-hmm. I didn't really— you shot black bears. You got you have a Asian guy come up to you. You got camo on. They try to buy the gallbladder right there when mm-hmm. you, you. I mean, thirty five hundred bucks for a gallbladder and pank is about what it was. Pancreas is what it was going for then. Mm-hmm. You know me initially, I was just going to sell it to him. I didn't really think about <laughs> it, and I'm like, huh. Well, if this guy's meeting me in the parking lot, this can't be good. And then I'm thinking, you know, you can't sell meat, right? You can't just sell your That's your correct. meat. And then I thought fuck, I better not do this. And I didn't. Well, then I went and talked to my buddy who was a game warden and he was like, yeah, dude, that's serious. So go ahead. Just to give people not knowing how big of a deal it is, it's it's a lot bigger than I thought it was, but go ahead. It, it is really big and uh, it's big in the United States and North America and, and parts of the world because that bile means a lot to certain groups around the world. And... <laughs> The bile, that dried bile rivals, in fact, exceeds the price of narcotics, cocaine, for example. It's worth more money than that. And think about it. People see bears all the time. Mm-hmm. They're easy to shoot. They're easy to just rip them open, cut the four paws off because the bear paw soup is big money. In some places around the United States, $150, $200 for a bowl of soup made out of a bear paw. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's certain beliefs. Frank, don't be getting any ideas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've never even heard of bear paw soup. Well, that's a, it, it was a new world for me because mm-hmm. when I learned about all this, I'm like, who the fuck eat a fucking bear paw? They've been de- eating garbage and rooting and rotten meat, but it's it's huge. There's uh, beliefs. Yeah. Uh, there's beliefs. And, you know, obviously we talk, we'll talk some, hopefully at some point about rhinos as well. And those beliefs are deeply rooted, just like we believe our beliefs are certain things. You know, I got to have my cup of coffee every morning or if I drink this or that, it's going to make me a better human being or make me healthier. So those kind of beliefs are deeply rooted there. So having said that, um, we were asked and I actually, as I proceeded through my career, I was asked more and more to do UC work. Um, and we worked joint operations with Canada. A uh, great bunch of guys up there, hard workers, hard chargers. And think about it, some of their provinces, you could fit half of our country in 
Um, and there's just a handful of guys that are trying to fight the illegal trade. Right. Um, so there was some intel. It always starts with the phone call. Hey, somebody's doing something. Hey, I know this guy who killed a bear and somebody wanted to buy the gallbladder. Um, we actually had received some information. There was some – and I'll say this. Not all bear outfitters are bad guys. There's really good outfitters. But there are some that were taking that gallbladder – and moving it into the legal trade, even though it was illegal in Canada. And what had happened is they had um, run some guys in there. You see some Canadian guys, and it just didn't work out. So the idea was bring a couple of U.S. guys up on a hunt and see where it progressed. Get a justice for a second. Um, Your head's too little. Yeah. <laughs> You've been wearing this or what? I know, right? It's got stretch marks on it from my head. <laughs> so... Um, we came up as U.S. hunters and started snooping around and seeing what was out there. And they had some intel, a couple outfitters that they were looking at pretty hard. And uh, we had hunted with another guy, um, really didn't find a whole lot. There was some there, but not like that big smoking gun, that curl of smoke that you want coming out. Um, and uh, the guy who was in charge of the project said, stop at this guy's place on the way home. Just make an intro. And um, that was all it was. I'd happened to I purchased a gallbladder from another guy, and I had it in a little cooler. There was like three or four of them. They were all small. Um, wheeled into this guy's place, started talking about booking a hunt with him, him and my partner, and we were just sitting there talking about hunting and everything. And the subject came up about bear parts. Mm -hmm. And um, he looked at me and he said, uh, are you talking about? Bear gallbladders. That's how he said it. I never forget it. Um, and I said, "Well, yeah." I said, "I have a couple." And he goes, "Show me." And I go, "Uh, uh, I don't know you." Yeah. And I said, "I'm," and that precipitated him. He had to see him. Yeah. Which is exactly what we wanted to do. And I won't share all trade secrets, but I'll share a few. Um, and so I went to the truck. Opened my little igloo cooler, and here's a little baggie full of gallbladders. And when I showed it to him, he looked at him, he put them in the box, closed the box, and he said, I'll be right back. And brought out, I think it was half dozen, um, which were already dried. He knew how to dry them correctly. There's an art to doing that. There's a certain way to do it, you know, that's got to be preserved correctly so it doesn't mold or, or spoil. And I purchased six gallbladders and I said, okay, I'll, I'll take these, but you got to throw in two of your t-shirts, mm -hmm. which were his outfitting t-shirts. That was my trophy. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> so, uh, made the deal, went back to our guys, hooked up with them and I threw a little King Supers bag full of gallbladders and with the t-shirts in it. And he, he couldn't believe it that he would sell to us on the very first visit. Yeah, I told but, you, you got a trusting face. <laughs> so it, it wasn't just me. I had lots of help. It's um, the mustache. Yeah. <laughs> so it worked out really well. Um, it began over a two-year investigation, and, and these things spider out like a web because there's gatherers, there's killers, there's dealers, there's middlemen, there's wholesalers. It's just like the drug trade. It's exactly yeah. like the drug trade. And so what we came to find out, the reason the Canadians didn't make it too far was they actually had a law enforcement officer um, this guy was working for. 
he was working for the outfitter and he was running Intel. He would check out these potential they had a hunters. Rat. Exactly. Yeah. It's like rat. the movie The Got Departed. Got a rat in the cage. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Rat in the nest. Yeah. So what he would do is he'd run their license plates and kind of ferret them out and see if they were who they said they were. Well, two Americans showing up, our stuff was good and we buried ourselves pretty deep. It takes a long time to get yourself buried, but you we passed the smell test. So just because this has come up, well, conversation you and I've had mm -hmm. many times um, where you've helped me to stay out of trouble, not taught me how to break the law, but basically to make sure I'm never breaking the law. Because as I get more known in the industry, um, you you had mentioned you become a trophy uh, to a certain extent. Am I am I uh, was I understanding that correctly? Do you, do you feel do do game wardens like at a state level do they get bonus points or does it look better for them if they bust a TV personality, a known personality uh, when compared to, or do they try harder for that compared to just a normal average Joe? I don't think they try harder for that. Do they want your goatee on their lodge pole? There's some that do, I'm sure. Yeah. But it starts out with a phone call by somebody. Mm -hmm. They don't go looking for, to like today, a game warden didn't wake up and go, I think I'll go after Aaron Snyder today. Right. What it starts with is somebody makes a phone call and there's probably going to be phone calls now, right? Yeah. Um, and so-and-so did this or I saw this or I saw that. Not knowing the whole picture, they make assumptions on something. And one of the things that I realized being in this business this many years is that there are jealousies. When you're successful, there's always that, how did they do that? How can he do that all the time? Never mind the, the number of thousands of steps you climb at Red Rocks, the work you put into scouting, the work you put into shooting. I see it all the time. You know, never mind all that. They just think it just happens and it doesn't. It, uh, success happens with through hard work and effort. And but there are people who think and there are people that do cut corners. Yeah. So the people that think you're cutting a corner to be successful don't know you and don't know your ethics and who you are. Um, if I thought anything different of you, I wouldn't be talking to you. Yeah. And I've been pretty candid with you. I've done yeah. some dumb shit in my past. Right. But you learn and you, you get older and then you have more to lose, whether it be family or business or wh whatever. Um, I think Clay Lancaster told me which I believe, he said, if you haven't been investigated at least once or twice, you probably haven't done much uh, because there's no one that, that nobody has something to complain about. Mm -hmm. And the, like you said, jealousy, the better you get at something or the more successful you are, the more enemies you're going to have and they're going to make the phone call and go from there. Now, do you think, um, you know, bouncing around a little bit just off a of, uh, conversations that I've had with people since we've started the podcast, game wardens that I've talked to, how much has it changed where, uh, you know, the the common sense rule gets flung out the window because the a current game warden may have never hunted before and they don't understand. Meaning, uh, what's a good example? Guy shoots a black bear, runs into the bushes. Another black bear comes out. He shit in his pants, shoots that one, ends up shooting a sow and a cub legal to shoot a sow in that state, but he shot the cub too. It's his fault. He has the choice of sweeping it under the rug or turning himself in. How, how much, um, I mean, would you say that was, that was taken into consideration more of accidents happen and leniency was shown in the past as compared to current, 
or do you think it's just each game warden's different? And 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 what what are your views on that? You know, accidents happen. Do you take? Did you take into account shit happens and and uh, kind of assess the entire situation, or just drop the hammer? Oh no, absolutely. Uh, here's what happens: is when you come out of an academy and you're 21 years old, what are you doing? You think you can do everything? You you're you're gung ho. You're told by God, these are violators and you've got to go out and protect that resource. It's called the thin thin green line for a reason. That thin green line, there's only handfuls of game wardens across the United States mm-hmm. to do a job that is next to impossible. Okay. And that that is managing the resource, managing people, doing laws, using laws to the benefit of the resource, but also they're your customers. Yeah. Okay. They buy a hunting and fishing license. It's that hunting and fishing dollar that supplies the restoration of wildlife. We all know that, right? Look at all the organizations that are out there. You can name them. They're everywhere. Yeah. Um, so having said that, you have to look at <laughs> who your customer is mm-hmm. and what they're about. But when you're young, you don't see those things. You're really jazzed up from the academies and not only from you have to be state certified here in Colorado to be a law enforcement officer but also through the division of wildlife now parks and wildlife you have their academy just like we did in the feds we had a criminal investigators academy and then we had our own academy now having said that as you get time on you realize that stuff happens Okay, people make mistakes, people make intentional and unintentional mistakes. Um, I know of game wardens that have shot stuff, same scenario, but it was out. Game warden shoots, cow steps out, he shoots it, recoil the report of the rifle, he comes back down, there's another cow standing there. Yeah. He lets the air out of that one. Well, the game warden, I'm not going to bring up his name, but you had me talk to when I did the infamous squirrel poaching. Mm Mm-hmm called said you told me said just call you know what i mean they'll understand and shit happens whatever called and uh you know he he gave me crap about it gave me a warning Mm -hmm. and you know explained a lot of it was great it was a great conversation um he said man game wardens have not known the date and shot grouse the day Mm -hmm. before season because a lot of people think it starts when big game season starts he's like accidents happen it's the way that you handled this that I really appreciate. You didn't try to hide it, you know, whatever, and you came clean. And I was like, well, I didn't come totally clean. I, I called Leo first to make sure how stupid I was to 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 fall on the sword, even though it's a tree rat. Although that tree rat's 15 points on your license, I mm-hmm. found out. Uh, so nobody shoots squirrels out of season. I found that the hard way. But he was very cool, gave me a warning, and, uh, you know, explained a lot of things to me. Now, you take the case of, um, you know, John Luton's case? Um, no, uh, I'll, I'll say what I know. And, and if I'm wrong for the listeners out there, mm-hmm. um, they can jime in. I'm a, I'm a John Luton fan. He's a sheep fanatic. We see his photos, hangs out with Darren Epp. Um, I think what happened on that, from what I understand is he was, um, taking hunters out and, uh, I think he was charging them for, to photograph the hunt. Local guides got pissed, and they sent in two undercover Montana Department of Wildlife agents and basically tried to get get him to commit a crime on a sheep hunt. Um, And again, I'm not sure of everything because it's been several years since I was up on this, but from what I remember, um, 
they shot it, missed a few times, and they kept urging him, will you just shoot it for me? And he he wouldn't. And they finally killed it. I think the ram was 203. Mm. Big fucking ram. Yeah, right? yeah, Big yeah. ram. Well, he they got it, and they thinking they're trying to pile up charges. And so they say, well, we don't really want this ram the way the hunt went down. Do you want to buy the head? Because now he's buying illegally taken game to trump up the charges. So he buys the head. Um, well, you know, later on he gets busted, whatever, for illegal guiding or whatever the hell it was. And so they take the head and take everything. He wins in court. I think he went to court twice. They threw or then he won both times. The third time the judge threw it out. They're like, you know, and there was a lot of entrapment where they were trying to get him to break the law. So at the end of it, he's like, I want the head. I didn't take it illegally because it was thrown out of court. I won, so and they wouldn't give him the head, from what I understand. So it's kind of doing a little bit dirty in the sense of entrapment when they were trying to get him to break the law um, in the midst of all this. Now I know you've done a bunch of undercover work. When do, when are there times you've seen cases like that where you're scratching your head, thinking, "Jesus, what the hell were you guys thinking?" I mean, how often does that happen from you know, like Frank and I may look at a guy going on a mule deer stock and be like, what the hell was going on in your mind during that stock, you know, kind of backseat quarterback. How often does that happen now with you as you hear about cases? I think it uh, – first of all, what I want to say is there are some great game wardens in Montana and they do great work up there. There's a lot of pressure on the resource up there. So um, – I'm not going to armchair quarterback their investigation because I wasn't there. I don't know all the base intel. You know, I know one side of it now. Typically what happens now is there's a lot of intel. There's a lot of phone calls being made. You start rooting around and finding information. There's also information that's uh, revealed from sources, Mm -hmm. okay, and – you vet out those sources. Typically what we did in Fish and Wildlife is we did not start an investigation unless we have vetted out all the information and the intel was really strong to actually move forward. Um, In this case, I don't know what it was. Is there some really hard chargers out there that really want to hang a trophy on the wall? Sure. Um, They are. Yeah. So would you say maybe – I think it's a small percentage. In that case, they could have had where they thought was evidence and they put a lot of money into it. And then it got to where they were kind of at a dry hole. And so with all of that intel that they had and knew maybe John was wrong or whoever was wrong, Mm -hmm. um, that they pushed the issue farther than they should have. Do you think that can happen? Can it happen? Sure, it can happen. Um, Have you ever had it happen to you? No, sir. Okay. (laughs) Maybe you're better at your job. (laughs) It wasn't that I'm better at the job. I wasn't better than those guys. It's the amount of intel that we gathered. And, you know, it cost a lot of money to do an investigation. Well, you're a very OCD thorough guy from what I know of you. And your shit is together for the most part. I would have to guess that you probably handled – your job the same way as you do your life where, you know, you, I would, I would think that you, if you put that much heat on something or that much pressure that you're pretty, you know, that there's something there and, or you wouldn't pursue it. If that makes any sense where with this, what caught me is if they knew that much, why were they trying that hard to get him to commit a crime? And, and, you know, me not being a game warden, you know, it's like putting, um, 
you know, a guy's drunk on the way home. Uh, he's drinking and driving. That's wrong. But then you stick a pretty sexy looking woman on the corner who turns out to be, you know, try to solic- what am I trying to get at? They're soliciting prostitution and the guy says no. And she pushes and pushes and pushes. And after 20 minutes of pushing, yeah, the guy's wrong. But there was a lot of effort to mm-hmm. get that guy to break the law. That does irritate the shit out of me. Like, if he's clean, he's clean. Like, if, if you got to push that hard, if I offer you a sandwich long enough and you're on a diet, eventually you're going to eat the fucker, right? <laughs> I mean, one way or another. So that kind of stuff does irritate me a little bit. Is there pressure to succeed? Yes. <laughs> okay? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, do you have a strong belief in what you're doing as a game warden? Absolutely. Think about it. You're talking of handfuls of guys in all these states that have thousands of square miles to patrol, mm-hmm. that have all kinds of – their phones never stop ringing. You know, at my house, my wife – when I was a game warden, was a juvenile probation officer, and we argued who would answer the phone at midnight because <laughs> it was either going to be some kid that turned over a pop machine or kicked in a window or it was some spotlighter at night. Yeah. Um, there's very few of them. A lot is asked of them, um, and they do a phenomenal job with what they have to do. If you get a piece of information, you ferret it out the best you can. And the job's changed. It, I look at when I started in the 80s, a lot of it was law enforcement. It was primarily law enforcement, right. you know, check licenses, you know, do roadblocks. Then there was Creel Census, and then it was gay management projects, you know, shooting bighorn sheep out of helicopters to transplant them. I did that. I did uh, deer captures, you know, antelope captures, all those kinds of things. But our roots were always towards law enforcement because – we thought we could make the biggest bang and the make biggest difference there. Um, are there investigations that are started with minimal information? Sure. Do they develop? Yes. There's one here in Colorado that started that way, and it was up in Dinosaur National Park. Yeah. Is that? I think you might have mentioned that one to me at one point. And I, I mean, again, I and I don't have anything uh, against game wardens. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of like a cop, right? Like. You know, you, you, you love them when you need them. You hate them when you don't, um, so to speak. I've never had any issues with game wardens. I believe I've been not, uh, what would you call that? I've been looked into and not investigated on a few different times um, from what I've been told. And that's understandable. Uh, you know, it's more of the, the, what am I trying to say here? It opened my eyes as small as the squirrel thing was to maybe it's not a bad idea to you know, fess up and say, hey, turn yourself in. Well, then I'm out in eastern Colorado this year and run into a rancher and he uh, tells me a story. He's like, well, I shot an antelope and hit a rock, killed another one and turned myself in. And, you know, I got a minimum fine, but I got 15 points on my license or or whatever. Well, then I'm like, "Ah." and a lot of we get a lot of questions. um, And I will say I love the fact that the the actual game wardens do email me if I've said something wrong or they have something to chime mm-hmm. in on, and they're great about that. But I think uh, coming as a as a me and Frank, two ding-dongs heading out in the woods to go kill something, there's a lot of variables and a lot of things unknown. If something does happen, what should you do? Now, Frank and I have a lot to lose. Frace is mm-hmm. a kafaru. Uh, something happens, do we shoot, shovel, and shut up, or do we do the right thing uh, and go turn ourselves in because people that dislike us 
aren't going to say, hey, they did the right thing. They made a mistake and turned themselves in. Hell no, they're not going to do that. They're going to turn it into a, we're, we're poachers or we broke the law. It's a hard, it, you know, the job's hard for sure, what you do. Um, and I know as someone heading out into the woods and from the feedback we get, there's a lot of unanswered questions. And I've talked to, as you know, regular game wardens mm-hmm. and tried to get them on here. Not all of them really want to hop on because I, I can see how it would be difficult questions to ask or answer, um, you know, because I, it, it's case by case basis. But I, I mean, I wouldn't want to do the job because it would, I'd probably never write a ticket until the guy was actually doing something really bad and I'd get fired um, because I'm looking at it from a, coming from, you know, 25, 30 years in the woods. I probably wouldn't want to write a ticket unless the guy, you know, shooting shit in the headlights. Yeah, I'd write that ticket, but. There's so many different variables. It would be it's a thankless job, I would I would guess, in a lot of ways. But it's rewarding. Yeah. The fact that you can bring back a species. Think about it. In this country, we are enjoying more species of wildlife to hunt. If you look in the eighteen hundreds, sixty thousand whitetails left in the United States. Yeah. Okay. I think Frank would have killed that in Alabama <laughs> if we left them down there any longer. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> Texas Road kills more whitetails in some states legally harvest. The numbers are phenomenal. We've done tremendous job of restoring our wildlife resources in this country. Yeah. Um, having said that, we're very protective of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, do we look at these laws and regulations really hard? Sure we do. If I'm a new guy, I'm going to study that proclamation, that brochure. I'm going to look at my statutes and my regulations. I'm going to look at the intent of the law and try to enforce it to the best of my ability. That's what I did. But at the same time, I hunt and fish, okay? I've peed in my Cheerios, okay? People are be going, really? Let me write that down right now. But the reality is if you hunt and fish any length of time, something's going to happen, whether it's intentional or unintentional. And it's usually the unintentional that you're, you are more dismayed and more – you are harder on yourself than any court or any fine would be on you, especially as a game warden. Nobody wants to violate the law. But stuff happens. And when it happens, to me, the best thing to do is – Call your local game board. And here's the problem is it's not a we versus them. And that's what it's coming out. It's turning out to be is we versus them. You will drive five miles around to get away from that bighorn sheep emblem on the side of that truck. Then drive them and say, hey, how's it going? Yeah, I will. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you'll, no, you'll drive around it. 50, not five. Fuck, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and again, it's like when OSHA shows up at the job site. And I, Brian and I talked about this on Gritty Bowman is they're going to find something. If they've shown up on your job site, there's a reason, right? But they're going to look hard. You can get a OSHA violation for not having your catalog manual to your cordless drill, right? If they want to push the issue. Mm-hmm. I don't have any of mine, right? So- Again, um, it definitely, and I can't speak for everyone, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people does. They're not there to help you. OSHA's not there to help you. It certainly doesn't seem like it. They never corrected violations on a job site I was on and walked away without a fine. They were digging, and they were digging hard. I'm not saying that's the way the Department of Wildlife works at all, but I know the perception by a lot of people, it is a us versus them type of a thing. Now, recently, I'm not going to bring up any names, just out of coincidence— I had shot a deer out east. Um, deer jumped the fence. It was a fence we couldn't get permission on. Um, and I, and you and I have talked about this, mm-hmm. and I was like, I hate seeing 
I mean, Frank and I have three deep. We like we eat game every day. Mm-hmm. I can't get on that land, but the deer jumped a fence and bedded a couple hundred yards away. I want to just jump the fence and go get the deer. Well, sure. later on, I ran into the game warden. I told him that, and uh, it happenstance, right? We're talking. He said, "Well, I would have wrote you a ticket," and I said, "Well." <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's right, personally. And he brought in all the variables, which I totally understand. You know, you, you could make it look like it jumped a fence and maybe you shot it on the right. There's a lot of different, you know, sure. variables. But I'm looking at it from just the guy that shot the deer and the guy watching the deer go to waste. And, you know, he brought up a good point. The Department of Wildlife factors in those things happening, right, for the population. And I'm like, yeah, but it's right there. Like, you know, it's intent. My intent wasn't to shoot it on the wrong side of the fence, right? My intent, I shot it on the right side. It jumped. My intent's not just to let the animal waste. And, and uh, you know, I think that on some of those things, like this has nothing to do with, you know, my intent to break the law when I left the house that day. It's more to me like, you're really going to write me a ticket for trying to do the right thing. But is it the right thing? Man, you are jumping a, a property boundary, um, and it gets confusing. It would be a pain, and and we talked about this before as well. The way I look at it, there's kind of three uh, potentials. You've got the the intent guy that intends to break the law. Frank and I load up donuts in our pack, and we're going to bait bears, and we know it's illegal. I'm intentionally breaking the law, and Frank's helping me. Then there's the second. We went out with no donuts, donuts in our pack, uh, you know, or whatever, uh, or let's say not say donuts. We didn't plan to cross the border of one unit to another, but there's a 200-inch mule deer, 150 yards on that side of the mountain range. Mm, well, yeah, we went and shot it. We, you know, we didn't intend to that day, but son of a bitch, that deer was big. Uh, and then there's the guy that's just lost his shit, doesn't know, flings an arrow, figures out later on, oh, I broke the law and I didn't know. How often are those that intent taken into account? A lot. Yeah. And and I'll tell you why I say that is each circumstance is different, right? You know, how it came to be, what the intention was. The thing is, is the onus is on the hunter to know where he's at and what he's doing. That's why they make all these brochures since the 30s. Um. To me, it's about relationships. If you know your game warden and you have a good relationship with that game warden or that federal agent for federal things, um, you can pick up the phone and say, here's what happened. Here's what I – what can we do? Let's say this game warden, for instance, you're talking about has a relationship with that landowner who where that deer happens to go on and he makes a phone call and all of a sudden you get a call back saying, yeah, go get it. Or, I'm coming out. I'll help you get it out. And that way I I do it. It's about relationships. And the more we carve into a we versus them thing, obviously it's not a relationship. Is there the right thing to do? Does it, it in your heart, you know that animal is going to spoil in a matter of hours. It's right there. I should be able to go get it. But the reality is that line is drawn. And here's the deal is if you, and we all do it, right? We're coming to work and do we go faster than we should. Mm-hmm. And we get, sometimes we get pulled out. It's like fishing for salmon right here on 470. And you can watch these guys on 470 and it's fishing for salmon. We know we're going faster than we should. We know it's against the law, but we do it because we've got to get to work or we've, I call it the, I got has got to do this, got to do that. And that happens. 
in wildlife law enforcement, when we go out into the field, it's incumbent upon me as a as a hunter to try to know as much as I can. And there's kind of the rub because what you see developing in time now is when I looked at my early regulation and law books, dude, they were a half inch, three quarters of an inch thick. Now they're volumes. Yeah. Well, I, I called this year and we talked about it after Brian shot his bull. I had a bear tag. And I'm thinking a few years ago, I thought for sure you had to have an elk or a deer tag to hunt bear in that that unit. And I'm like, well, why the hell would they let me purchase a bear tag? Because I don't have that. So I called the local game warden who at first I thought was an asshole. And he's super, we get along great, I think now. He's super Mm -hmm. cool. I called him and he's like, Aaron, you're right. But now you're good to go. Head in there. Kill that bear. Okay. Well, now I think it's changed in the last six months um, from what... I had what was legal then and what is legal now. Um, and so, yeah, things are constantly changing. And I totally agree. You have to have, you have to own your shit, right? If you, if you screw up um, and you, you, uh, you know, you didn't read, the, you didn't pay attention enough, you were lost and didn't pay attention to the boundary. I totally understand, uh, you know, you have to own that. Uh, you also have the option of hiding it. And that's what the questions I get. And I'm the wrong guy to, you know, answer those because I'm not a game warden. People ask me, and Brian and I tried to do a podcast on this two or three different times. It never, we never published it because you have the the days of party hunters, right? Mm-hmm. It's still legal to party hunt in some states, I think. Yeah, you. I, I mean, that's what you did. You had six guys, you had six elk tags. As long as six elk went home, you're golden, right? Didn't matter who shot it. Yeah. So, but now, you know, state of Colorado, you can't party hunt. Um, I know a few different cases or not cases, friends where grandpa was there. Grandpa can't make it up the hill anymore. And grandpa's tag got filled and grandpa got a ticket. So did the guy that shot, you know, shot it. And, uh, you know, where it seems like maybe back in the day, you know, I'm only, you know, 40, uh, 41, I guess now way back before, well, before I was hunting and even into when I was a kid, those things were relatively normal where now it's a big no-no and taken extremely serious. And I, uh, I can see how people get scared and confused as far as hunters. And, and I can see how it can get, eh, maybe not confusing for you guys, but it definitely can be mm, difficult at times to make the best decision. And confusing. You know, these laws are changing yearly in some cases in some states. Um, when you talk to your local game warden, I happen to have a discussion recently to my local game warden and said, am I reading the brochure right that it says I can't pick up sheds till May? Yeah. And he's, uh, yeah, it does say that, you know. And and you have to have and a he sh- was hesitant to commit only because when a game warden says this is this or this is that, it's like Aaron Schneider saying I use Kafaru. Yeah. They follow it. Okay, mm-hmm. it's law. It's that guy should know what he's talking about, and he does. So they're very, very hesitant to say that unless they know absolutely sure. They have to dig in their reg books. They got to look at the intent of the law, you know, what the game commission was thinking, what the legislature was thinking, and the politics of that. But once they figure it out, then they're really good about saying, no, you can't do that. Yeah, it's close. And the reason the shed hunting is a big deal now is because of the wintering grounds. Yeah. You're disturbing those animals on wintering grounds, and they've already proven it through research well, that I've, it I brought them. this up. I'm all for it. Now, right. those poor bastards get hunted 
already probably too much or a lot. Um, I mean, it's nice to have an off season for us where we can lay around, eat ice cream and ho-hos and not, mm-hmm. not have to maybe train as hard. So I, I like the idea they get a break and it doesn't bother me to have to pay for you know, I, I guess I'm more if it's going to the wildlife. I don't give a shit if I have to pay 40 bucks to go shed hunting. Now, I've gotten flack from that and some hate mail. Something about Utah and shed hunters. <laughs> mm-hmm. Those guys are extreme. I mean, they are too legit to quit and on shed hunting. They're like, dude, that's horrible. Whatever. And I'm like, hey, these are just my views. It doesn't mean we can't still be friends. I just think 40 bucks if you want to go shed hunting. I, I pay whatever it is, 40 bucks to go fishing. I pay 40 bucks for an elk tag or 50. It goes to the goes to the... I mean, in a broad spectrum, it goes to what we love, right? Yep. It goes to what we're doing. Doesn't bug me. Bug me. Now, if I find a set of sheds, am I going to touch them? Yeah, I'm probably going to hide them because I'll come back and get them. You know, is that illegal? Well, I mean, if you're out, you might have to go find me and give me a ticket because I'm probably going to hang them in a tree so I'm I can retired. get them later. Yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> but being being honest, if yep. I find a giant rack and I can't take it, I'm, I'm probably going to, it's just going to sit there and rot anyway. I'm probably going to throw it in a tree, go when you get my, you know, my, my, what do they call it now? Your shed hunting permit? Permit. 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 I'm going to get my permit and I'm going to come back and I'm going to grab them. Is that illegal? Well, if you give me a ticket, I'll just suck it up and take it. But I would probably do that, but I don't mind at all paying for it because the animals need a, a break in my opinion at that time. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't for fuck sticks, running them down with four wheelers, Sorry if we have to edit that. Or guys putting corn and, and chicken wire where the horns get hung up and every we probably wouldn't be forced with some of these issues. It was just some guys walking around in the woods. It's probably not as big of a deal. The problem you get is you get guys on snowmobiles, guys on four wheelers, running them down, trying to get the horns to fall off. Yeah, that that's a problem. And so I can see why it, it happened. Total tangent there off, you know, off another squirrel. But I, those things don't really bug me. Um I think the big thing is you know, your intent, what you've mm-hmm. done wrong, should you report, should you turn yourself in, what are the potential outcomes? And I have to say, I feel that I think if someone known, a TV personality, whatever it is, he turns himself in and for the exact same violation, Joe Blow turns himself in, it seems, and I could be wrong, that it may be made a bigger deal if that person that is a very known celebrity or whatever turned themselves in, it'd probably be taken harder than everyday Joe. I could be totally wrong. And what do you think? The answer is it depends (laughs) (laughs) on the warden, on the investigator, and on the circumstances. I'm just saying a guy turning himself in. So Anybody that turns themselves in is going to get some sort of recognition for turning themselves in through that officer that's investigating that case or through the court system. Because, you know, look at how many times people plead guilty to something and they're sentenced and it goes away very quickly, And even in general crimes, you know. Yeah. But the person that has to be ferreted out and you have to use a tag team to get them out of that, that house, yeah. you know, is not going to be treated the same way. So to – is there a bigger trophy tag attached to a celebrity? Yeah, probably. It it sure seems I'm not going to bring up the one guy, but he was trespassing to get to a hunting area, and he told me some of the story. They had three years of his Facebook messages and text messages, and which I mean, I God forbid anybody looks through three years of our memes back and forth. <laughs> Forget hunting, right? Mm-hmm. Just I mean, there's some horrible shit we 
especially Frank. I mean, there's some funny <laughs> ones, but like, <laughs> um, but uh, they walk in and he thinks he's going down there to talk about deer or something. They asked him, and there's game wardens from three states, and he finally was basically. I think he just said, "I did it" or whatever. But then they go to his house and they seized all his animals and took pictures of him in the back of a truck. But he only was guilty for one of them. But the article that went into the, you know, the the paper had all those animals in the back of the truck. It made him look really bad. Now I'm not saying he didn't break the law. He did. I mean, he he was he was guilty. They made it look worse than it was. I mean, did it he, looked bad. Did he cross property or did he cross corners? No, he crossed property. Okay. He was legal as shit. I mean, yeah. he knew what he was doing. Because mm-hmm. um, it's illegal to cross corners too, right? Oh, any anything that's not it's. If it's not your land, you can't cross it unless you have permission. Even state land. People have – that's like a big misconception out there, state land. I learned a lot about that with talking with – which I'm glad I did. Onyx Hunt Maps has a a downfall. Um, And I I should have talked to him about this before. If you – and this – totally this can screw you. If if when I say you, if you're coming to hunt antelope – for example, because it's really bad out east. It's not as bad out west. You're coming out east. You turn on your Onyx hunt maps. There's an antelope. It'll say state of Colorado or Colorado state land. Immediately, because I've done it, thank God there's a statute of limitations, I technically <laughs> poached my ass off because it said Colorado state lands. Now, what made me, I thought the guy was lying. Rancher came up. What the? What are you doing? I'm like, I'm hunting told him it was whatever and he was pissed he said not at me as much he said hey i understand and i actually had a print out a map and it, it says whatever well he leases that from the state that's now his land well i mean i was like thinking the guy this is one of those deals where he's just trying to scare me off and i was like hey i it says colorado state land he said i lease it for the cattle rights grazing rights or mm-hmm. whatever that's trespassing. Well, it doesn't differentiate that on Onyx hunt maps. That's so correct. That that is one thing with Onyx, and that doesn't. I've never seen a case of that in the mountains. Doesn't matter. And I say it doesn't matter. Never seen where it matters on a mountain hunt. Eastern Colorado. Oh yeah, you'll get pinched quick, um, jammed up. Well, dude, like a couple weeks ago when I went coyote hunting, me and Dan were out. Oh, yeah. We're out east, and we we have Onyx maps, and we we there's this small section of BLM we're calling coyotes. And we, we didn't kill anything. We're coming back to the truck and this rancher drives up and uh, he gets out of the truck and I'm like, damn, this is going to go one of two ways. He's either, he's either going to be cool and be like, hey, you want to come, come kill some cows or he's going to be like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> so he gets out of the truck. And it and was option starts, two. It was <laughs> option two. He gets out of the truck and starts yelling. He's like, do you boys have permission to be out here? And me and Dan are like, this is BLM, man. And he's like, no, this is a ranch, but... This, I mean, this doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the state lands thing, but we were kind of, I was worried at first because I was like, was this state lands or was this BLM lands? And I asked the guy, I'm like, are you leasing this? He's like, no, this is a ranch. Well, anyway, he called the cops. Cop came. We talked to the cop. We decided we would call the game warden ourselves and tell him, hey, we had an interaction with this dude. He was pissed off. We stayed calm. The dude freaking lost probably, his shit. It's probably good I wasn't there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the guy was getting fucking crazy. Like, I don't know why we. I mean, we probably could have beat him, whatever. But, but we we called the game warden. We figured, you know, we might as well. This the cops are going to call the game warden anyway, mm-hmm. so we'll call him and we'll tell him, hey, you know, we were down here. We're on this BLM. I can show you on the GPS. It tracks where we were at. We never got off the private land. And dude was super cool. The game warden. We kind of know know him anyway. Or he knows us because we spent a lot of time down there. But, um. 
yeah, that was just a, a well, little tangent there. I mean, that's good. I mean, we're going down several rabbit holes, which I think is good. I mean, this will be a long ass. We'll just make it in two parts. But um, you can get scared pretty quickly if you don't know. I mean, and sometimes you just can't know, right? Like, But I've had it happen three different times, I guess, where one was uh, state road, private land, road on the other side. You can't stop, but you can drive through it. There's easement. Yep. Well, I, I thought I was legal and the guy stopped me and he's screaming at me, telling me to turn around. There's private property. And I'm like, why does it have a, I wonder, you know, and, and it, but you're legal to drive through it. You can't hunt, you can't stop. You're not even supposed to stop and pee, but you can drive through it. But some of those landowners will try and, you know, scare the crap out of you. This really doesn't have anything to do with game wardens, and it more has to do with one, call one if you have a question, and two, know as much as you possibly can before you, you know, head out. And and I think on on those, I mean, for for example, if you know you're going to be driving across that, which is my motto now, I call ahead of time to make sure that I'm I'm good to go, um, you know, to cross that. I mean, that's a state law. You can do that. It's same for boating now. As we're diving down that rabbit hole, with all the different things that you had faced, I would imagine, I hate to say this kind of shit's piddly, but piddly stuff like this probably left the equation for you as you started working on the federal side of things. Well, what we looked at on the federal side was commercialization of wildlife. Our our real focus when I worked, we ran a special investigations unit Um I was privileged to work with some really talented guys and gals, and um, our charge was to look at severely endangered species, the worst of the worst, and those species being commercialized for mm-hmm. profit. Okay, and when you when I'll just digress back for a second, the antler trade, the antler trade is huge. Why are people picking up all those sheds? Because it's worth fourteen, fifteen dollars a pound, right. and people make. They're hunting money off of it, and they pay a bill or two with it, so it's money. Um, wildlife has always had an attachment to the money. Mm-hmm. Okay, look what it's worth. We're in the U.S. It's second only to the drug trade. Think right. about that. Yeah, that illegal trafficking of wildlife is second to the drug trade. And how big is the drug trade? Pretty big. Pretty big. <laughs> so yeah. now you've got wildlife. Now you've got money being attached to that wildlife. Now. There is a handful of folks that if if it's more endangered and more threatened, there's only three of them, I want one. Mm -hmm. And they'll pay that money for it. You know, what is your logo? Yeah, Kafaro Rhino, yeah. yeah. Right. So that horn, which is just fingernails, really, if you think about it, is worth thousands of dollars. And Yeah, and I know, and we'll we'll definitely hit on this because your last case was – Rhino poaching. Correct. Um, And uh, I, you know, it's difficult with all of this different, I mean, I would not want to have to deal with it, but with what you did on the, the, the federal side, like you said, it's a much broader spectrum and much, I guess you could say maybe bigger picture um, type of work, just because obviously you're talking about animal, a species making it or not, and the numbers of that species and everything else. Now, um, when you did some of that, and we are bouncing all over, how often did you have to have tactical teams on some of this shit? Because it seems like it'd get pretty hairy. I, I kind of smile because the reality is, is 
there wasn't much of anything. Now, we have protocols in place now, and it's a lot different. You have QRF on board? <laughs> <laughs> we have. Um, I actually had a U.S. Customs helicopter over the top of me one time while I was putting out a signaling device to know where we were at because this guy was using parasails to find giant deer in the south rim of the Grand Canyon. Oh, yeah. And basically what this guy would do was um, – I think I'm too lazy. I don't think I put that much effort into it. Because it was he was making big, big money because these permits, these governor tags were being bought by very wealthy individuals who wanted a two hundred plus inch mule deer. And this guy who happened to be a firefighter, nothing against firefighters, come put out my fire <laughs> if my house catches on fire. Okay, guys. Um but he would actually go and buy sheds from, how do I say this, um, from certain giant parcels of lands that were set aside many years ago. Yeah. And he would buy these 200-inch sheds, and then he would start finding where these deer were at. And he would use a parasail to locate these deer. Now, I thought that was legal if you didn't hunt in a certain amount of time. It depends on the state. Okay. Okay. But there's also a thing called the Airborne Hunting Act, which is a federal law. Which See, it's good you're on here. I mean, Frank and I aren't going to fucking do any cliff jumping or anything, but <laughs> I was just, you know what I mean? I'm going off of a uh, sure. NWT or whatever, you know. So under the Airborne Hunting Act, you can't rally, harass, chase do anything to make that animal move with any kind of conveyance mm-hmm. in the air, okay, and kill it. So there's also state laws that have it. Alaska has same day in air, right? Yeah. We all know that. You go to Alaska, you got to sit a day before you can go out and shoot your moose or your grizzly bear or whatever you're hunting out there. Um, in this particular case, we had received requests for assistance from this giant parcel of land as well as the state saying we got a problem and here's the problem. The guy's really good. He's really killing giant deer. And basically, these guys would bid on a tag. Um, they would buy the tag. They would go back to wherever they lived. This guy would wait for a phone call. And then there were people that were being paid to produce these deer. Mm-hmm. I'm talking guys are out in the field, you know, guides and scouts. And they would take pictures of these deer and they would submit these deer. And this is what it'll cost you for this deer. Mm -hmm. So um, I was asked to book a hunt and I booked a hunt and went out with the guy um, and watched him get out his parasail. And he actually had sent me some very strategically done video snippets of these 200 plus inch deer. And it, you couldn't tell, to, you know, you could tell a little topography, but you, you didn't know where you were at. So you couldn't find this deer on your own. So the guy uh, sent me the snippets, found the shed, showed me the sheds. I, and I happened to want to go on a scouting trip with him. And he thought that was quite unusual. Yeah. Um, but he allowed me to go. And I saw how it's it happened. It's the mustache, man. <laughs> <laughs> he allowed me to go. And. Of course, I wasn't in the parasail, and I watched him set it up, fly, go scout around a while, took some video. Here it comes with this giant deer. So it'll cost you another $25,000 for this deer. Mm-hmm. So um, in the end, I, and here's the thing about working undercover hunts. We do our very best not to take anything. 
Yeah. Okay. We don't go out. This is not a paid hunting trip by the government for a game warden. Right. We do our very best because that's not what we're there for. We're there for to document the violations as they occur. So long story short with this guy, what we couldn't figure out is he would use the parasail scout. They would have the hunting season. They would have their camp, but the parasails would never move again. Okay. Mm -hmm. So how are they killing these big deer? Well, I happen to do a lot of surveys out of helicopters and airplanes. And we also did a lot of deer trapping. And in that deer trapping, you get those big giant bucks. They will run for a while, mm -hmm. but they're big, they're heavy, and they can't run for a long time. So they would hide under trees. I actually could put a skid on, off of a helicopter on a tree, and that deer would look up at you. And as long as he thought he was hidden, he wouldn't move. But if he thought he was busted, he would run. But so here's what happens. In the deserts, you can see tracks for a long time, right? You go yeah. down and hunt javelinas. You can follow those javelinas for a long time. The track looks really good. So here's what they did is they actually would run the deer into the ground. Mm -hmm. Guess what happens? Lactic acid buildup. Yeah, just he, like a human. Yeah. Right? Where does he go? Goes for water. Yeah. So where is he going to be? He's going to be within a half mile to a mile of that watering tank. He's going to be laying down, and he's sore. So they call the hunter up from wherever in the United States, bring him out, put him on that deer track, follow that deer truck. Ooh, look, there's a big buck. Jumps up. The, guy, <laughs> the hunter shoots him. True story. Hunter shoots him. Here's my 200-plus-inch deer. Look what I did. Talk and about the prostitution of animals. That's exactly what it is. That's yeah. why I had a job, because that's not fair chase. Yeah. No, no, it's not. Okay. Time out. All right, we're back. We had to take a momentary pause there for a potty break. Um, but we were talking about uh, basically the parasails and you, um, you know, that that it was a victory. You got it figured out. And, you know, that's what you're there for is to, to protect that species or, protect, you know, basically for conservation. Um, and that, uh, I guess, how long did that take? That was one thing I was going to ask. That entire start to finish not not the court process but as far as your your dealings with it a couple of years yeah it takes a while to gain the trust of people and you know it takes it takes some time yeah yeah gotcha. do it correctly i i think um one of the things we touched on is you know we work a lot on severely endangered species but we also partnered with all of our states because they have problems colorado had problems, you know, different, the Western states have a lot of pressure on their big game species, obviously. In this case, Arizona had the problem with these guys going out and commercializing in these giant deer, which take away from the every gay guy who can go out there and draw a tag and go find one of these 200 inch deer, like, you know, your listeners have, and, and we know a good lot of law abiding citizens, this guy was taking away that resource for from that for those guys for that privilege yeah and now, making money at it <laughs> yeah it sounds like a, a lot, lot of a lot of money how much uh you personally not nothing to do with you know being a game warden how much does the um what i call the prostitution of animals how much does that bug you in the sense of totally understandable if you want to go hunt in um the Northwest Territories, you need an outfitter and a guide. If you want to hunt in Alaska, you need need an outfitter and a guide. Not talking about that British Columbia, certain it, but the buying and selling of animals wholesale in the sense of, I found a moose that you and I had talked about. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure how many people offered me money 
for that moose, but it was a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and it, it, it just works out, which I think is awesome. Is a good friend of both of ours drew the, or won the. It's great. Oh, fuck. I loved it. Cause then I, <laughs> but you know, let's say, um, I would be willing to say, Frank, if we were scouting and, and Frank, you found a 220 inch deer, I would say Frank could probably sell that for 15 grand pretty easily. 10 grand. More um, than that. I saw that there's a, there's an app now that scouts for you and then you buy whatever you pay them and then they'll send you pictures of i don't even know is that even legal or i don't i don't know well, I was there's gonna... also a the dude from rock slide robbie he has a business where he's they scout and they'll find game for you and they'll send you into an area so i, I mean it must be legal in some some states i suppose when i was trying to get out of construction i called dawson because i was going to start a scouting business and uh Basically, because I was in the woods, it was a way I could spend the entire year in the woods on the ground and uh, go find animals. And and I was just trying to find a way, basically, to not work construction. And I called, uh, you know, Dawson, he's a local game warden, and said, mm-hmm. hey, uh, is this legal? And he probably answered the way you would have. He's like, ah, here's where you're going to get in trouble. You cannot step foot during season on the ground where those people are hunting. And he listed everything out. He mm-hmm. said you're going to piss a lot of people off. And he said, uh, you're going to piss outfitters off. You know, you're, you're probably going to piss some game wardens off potentially. Um, he said, I wouldn't suggest it, but it is legal with how you've described it. And then I kind of took a step back and was like, you're kind of a fucking headhunter at that point, right? <laughs> like maybe I don't want to do this because, I mean, I don't see anything wrong if you find a big animal telling your buddies. It's when money gets involved, everything goes to shit. And, of course, people listening that may be, well, there's something going on in the next room. Good Lord, they're beating on the drum. Um, the people that um, make a living from this will probably get some kickback, but I'm not saying there's – anything wrong with being an outfitter I'm not saying anything wrong with being a guide where it kind of gets a little bit sticky is is like the prostitution of of that and, you- I, and i think that's the line that people cross is the pressure to succeed yeah whether you're an outfitter uh whether you're a guide um i know of circumstances during moose hunts here in colorado where there's confrontations over well i found this moose and you're in my spot and I've got a paid hunter mm-hmm. telling a draw hunter that yeah. uh, doesn't go very well. Yeah, that happens frequently. Yeah. Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah elk, um, mule deer, the whole nine. And, you know, these are very prestigious tags to win by a raffle, you mm-hmm. lucky dog, um, and draw the thing. And so now you have people that will pay an outfitter to find an animal and do that, which is fine. It's yeah. it's perfectly legal. They're a legal outfitter. There's nothing wrong with that. They're making a livelihood and a passion that they like. There's nothing wrong with that. The line steps over is when you start putting such a value on that animal for its headgear, its trophy value that people we're we're flawed. Yeah. We're a sinful people. So we succumb to the pressure of the money and that leads into trouble. Well, and I can say, and I've never talked about this before on a, a podcast, um, in the younger days of when I actually cared about trophies, um, mm-hmm. and I've, John Pinch is a guy I've talked to a great depth about this. One of the things that has not made me anti-trophy, but not give a crap is I had broken laws to shoot bigger animals. Um, you know, I'll just say that in total honesty. Mm-hmm. I, the, I probably got involved with the wrong person or people um getting into the industry 
and the rack, the size was everything. Mm -hmm. And you had to have that to have notoriety. And I did some things that weren't legal to get bigger animals. And then kind of the final straw, and this is years ago, was um, something I did where I'm like, I don't even give a a flip about these. Mm -hmm. Why am I doing this? Like, and now I've become kind of anti, uh, not anti-trophy mm -hmm. hunting. I think, I think hunting the most mature species is great, but meaning doing whatever it takes to, to kill the, the largest animal, including breaking the law, um, for notoriety and fame. And, and it happens all the time. Now I've been lucky enough to shoot a bunch of average animals and a few decent ones and still be somewhat known in the industry, but I've got a lot of flack for it too. To me, it ended up being what's what's making me happy, right? And shooting stuff and eating it makes me happy. Um, the adventure, right, makes me happy. I like going out and struggling, and that's kind of my thing. Now, you know, you go to um, uh, whatever. We were just at the sheep show. That's for conservation. I mean, they don't. Mm -hmm. There's a ton yep. of money into that, and you look at. I think the one year was four hundred and thirty-five thousand. The governor's uh, bighorn tag went for. I mean, that's tons and tons of money. But when you hear those type of numbers and you're a guy who may crisscross some some lines of, of, of ethics and uh, the law, well, if that guy had 435000 to to get that, then you can go find that animal. Uh, he's going to pay you some. But what happens when that animal jumps a fence? What happens when that animal, you know, whatever, and then that, that value on that animal has become at such a great number. Mm -hmm. You're going to do whatever it takes to get it. And it happens every year. I mean, you have why been I got on a job. many cases. That's why I had a job. Yeah, exactly. Many cases. Now, I don't know. Can you talk about what happened in the, uh, you know, western, northwestern corner? I'll talk a little bit about it. I, I guess I want to back up for a minute. So are we prostituting our wildlife to some degree, yes. Does money come in that protects our wildlife through different organizations, through drawings and raffles? Yes. It goes to the conservation of wildlife. I think a, the bigger thing we need to think about is what's our recruitment? How many young hunters are we coming in? What's the value? And then what's the pressure put on? I think the thing that concerns me is I'm like you. I've been blessed to take some pretty really good animals, but I'm a guy that's happy shooting a fork horn. Or a 30-inch deer. Mm -hmm. I'm, um, but I'm not opposed to the guy that's holding out because there's different levels of a hunter and you mature as a hunter depending on where you're at in your life cycle of hunting. Mm -hmm. And we all know how those things play. When you first start out, it's like trying to get that first animal. That So that spike is really – how many of us have a, a picture of a spike or a forkhorn as our first deer? Yeah, a lot of people. A lot yeah. of people. And so – and that to me is as important as a 30-inch deer. Um, when I see a young kid shoot a 30-inch deer, I'm so super happy for that kid except for – that bar is so high, yeah. how can you high jump that bar? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Everything else is nothing, right? And yeah. that's not why we hunt. We hunt because we don't hunt for food. Yeah. Although we always say, well, I need to meet. I want to get a, yeah. I, I need a meat bull this year, so I'm going to shoot a raghorn, you yeah. know. Um, but the reality is, is we go out for the pleasure of hunting, to be one with a creator in your belief system, to be one with nature and enjoy the beauty that's out there right that's why we do why we do it so i think sometimes we lose sight of that over being successful and i think in the industry there's such a pressure to succeed 
and have the biggest and the best that it sometimes overweighs or what we're thinking. And you look at different personalities on TV and there's some really, really good ones that promote that conservation, that promote that hunting ethic, that promote that. And sometimes those guys don't kill giant stuff. They don't even kill something sometimes. Um, There's nothing wrong with trophy hunting, but it's like cocaine. I had a guy I interviewed once and he really threw me. We were doing a search warrant on a house for some illegal elk and deer. Um, and the guy was a real estate broker. And he his job was to buy giant parcels of real estate where really good species of animals hung out. Places in Colorado where there were giant whitetails, yeah. giant mule deer. And uh, when I was interviewing, it was really interesting He was really nervous. I knew he had done what he had done. I just had to get him to tell me he had done this. And then at a point in the interview, we started talking about the antler size and the sheds and and the big racks that he had killed and other people around him. And he stopped and I said something about, you know, it's really addicting, isn't this? That chasing of the bone. And he goes, oh, yeah, it really is. And he goes, you know what? I was a cocaine addict. Yeah. And he said, I'm an antler addict. Yeah. I switched my drug of choice from into my body to into my mind. Yeah. And that's what he did for a living was he was an addict for antler. There's nothing wrong with collecting shows. There's nothing wrong with trophy hunting. There's nothing wrong with all that. It's what is that individual thinking and what drives him to do what he does. Right. And I, I, or uh, her. yeah, or her. No. And I mean, I think, um, I mean, I'm just, it's just, I mean, people, you know, you talk about stages of life. I don't know how many animals I've shot with a bow. I'm getting no closer to being a better trophy hunter. It's weird. It's just not mm-hmm. in me. I mean, it's not Lander last year. I shot the one buck. He, he about killed me. He's like, dude, you got five days left in the hunt. I'm like, ah, it was a great stock. And I, it, was, it was right there. I, I, was like, I don't care. He's like, man, that's what I love about you. You're always happy, right? You're just happy. And for me, that's, you know, important. But I, I go on hunts that are, I mean, it's the biggest or nothing with guys. Mm-hmm. And, and it's fun. It's great. Mm-hmm. I don't mind that at all. Where it comes into play is money. That's when shit, go, to my opinion anyway, shit goes downhill is when you start really – the the money uh, the money aspect of the, the that animal's value, um, you know, starts to where the money becomes so far, just skewed of the the fact that you've you've lost the adventure of the hunt, right? That's kind of gone because there's too much money into it. The, the thrill of the chase and all of that kind of goes to shit because really, you'll pay whatever money it takes to get it. And in some of these cases, the guy just kind of shows up and pops the animal because mm-hmm. some, you know, dude like me or Frank or some more other friends did all the the work. And I, I'm not really into that. But, yeah, I don't have any issue with, like you say, trophy hunting um, at all. I mean, it's always, you know, it's great to hunt the most mature species. Uh, but the industry is definitely different in some of those, um, you know, cases. So, And I guess my, my question would be is what are we telling our children? What yeah. are we telling future generations of hunters coming up? Um, to me, that spike should be as important as that 30-inch muley. Um, it's My- <laughs> giving them the experience. The problem is, too, is, is we're not getting out with our children. We're not mentoring our children into the outdoors. It's sort of an artificial deal if we're not careful. And those are our future generations because in this country, those licenses that are purchased by our hunters 
that's the future of wildlife. Yeah. And yet gas go, gas bills go up, operating costs go up for wildlife agencies. And so there's too much month at the end of the money. And so it's really important how they spend that money and how that's why law enforcement is such a pivotal part of wildlife management is one of the management tools. Yeah. And because there's only a limited amount of resource and it's being challenged all the time. And right now there's challenges here in Colorado. Now there's, and of course this will set off a hot topic, but wolf reintroduction. Right. You know, you, you talk to those guys up North in those Northern States and they're saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Mm -hmm. You know? And in reality, when you look at when the fish and wildlife, and I was part of an investigative team that investigated the Kittrick wolf, which was killed the Fish and Wildlife Service had a sound management plan mm-hmm. on how to reintroduce those wolves to get a number of breeding packs out and then give that management to the states where it rightfully belongs. The problem was is people who love those wolves started suing the Fish and Wildlife. Yeah. And preventing the that process from continuing. So lawsuits over a period of time, several years, guess what happens? The wolves are breeding. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so more packs, and now you've got numbers that they weren't even thinking of, and that's why you have sightings in Colorado. It becomes a broken system. Exactly. Whether you admit it to be or not. But you have non-consumptive users dictating through state legislatures how those management of animals should be done. And that's the hunting and fishing dollars that dictate that, but it's politics that dictate it today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I mean, you not to get off on all that, but well, no, I mean, you see, it's the niche thing now. Conservation is like the niche, new, cool thing to talk about. And it's good because obviously conservation is important. Um, but where that kind of ties into this is obviously the the perception uh, how you're how you are perceiving yourself to the public, right? In hunting, because of the non and anti hunters, um, which is important. Uh, you know how how you're looked at or perceived. Um, you know whether it be on social media or just. You know, I always try to strike up conversations. If I run into hikers and they look like they're relatively interested. I'm a talker. I mm-hmm. mean, it's good to make sure they know you're not a dumb fuck, right? That mm-hmm. you're out there, you, you you know, safety is in mind and you're backpacking in, you take all the meat out, that type of thing. And that is, I mean, that's super important because um, we're losing numbers as hunters. Colorado specifically, everybody from California is moving here and the number of hunters are going down and down uh, compared to the, the total population. And that's something that gets brought up constantly on many different, you know, podcasts around. But but back on uh, the your, – your, your final case before you retired, you were uh, on a rhino poaching case. Is that correct? That's or correct. ivory, and, whatever. Uh, well, it was – it had to do primarily with rhinos. Mm-hmm. Um the case resulted of information. What was happening here in the United States on one front was these items being sold at auctions, and I'm talking high-end auction houses. Yeah. These were drinking cups that were fashioned from rhino that were bringing thousands of dollars. Well, federal laws under the Endangered Species Act is pretty clear on how endangered species moves across state lines or how it can be sold or purchased. It's not illegal to purchase or to, now nobody buy it. (laughs) It's not illegal to possess an endangered species 
it's when you start commercializing and in that endangered species and moving it across state lines where the problems lie. And the problem is, is that rhino horn is worth thousands and thousands of dollars around the globe. And there are people willing to pay that money for it. And so you had anything from your great grandfather went to Africa and killed a rhino and it's sitting in the garage and it's worth a bunch of money to outright taking of rhinos in Africa and other places strictly for that horn. And there's been all kinds of methods tried, but what we did is we infiltrated organizations that were commercializing in, in black rhinos specifically because they're the most endangered. But then you said they would, there was cases where they would just trank them and take a chops, uh, chainsaw and cut the, the horn off. Basically. That's correct. They would uh, actually, because the money's so good, did fly in in helicopters and tranquilize these rhinos. And once they're down, they'd walk up to them and whack their horn off. And sometimes they'd reverse them. Sometimes they'd leave them there. And some would wake up and they'd walk around with the bridge of their nose gone. Well, infection sets in. It's a horrible way to die. Think about pulling your fingernails out one by one. Yeah. Or cutting the bridge of your, your nose off at the bottom of your skull and then saying, okay, have a nice day. Yeah. Well, one thing that uh, I've brought to people before, if the dollars of the hunters weren't at your disposal, or not at your disposal, but basically you're paid by those dollars, what anti-hunters don't understand, that poaching doesn't matter for the rhinos as far as in the United States. It doesn't matter what we're doing over here as far as hunting, right? It's not like if they banned or stopped hunting in the United States that poaching is going to stop. It's actually going to increase. Well, where's the dollars going to come from for your job or, or your old job? Because it, it's, I mean, it's all coming from our the, the licenses and fees from those licenses. People, I don't think, think about that a lot of times where – you know, it's not like crime is going to stop in the outdoors, meaning poaching or whatever else. It'll increase tenfold if you stopped hunting or internationally. Uh, where's that money going to come, come come from to fund someone like you and your team to go over there and take care of that? And I would imagine that was a costly investigation, oh, I absolutely. guess. Yeah. How long were you on that one? Well, that case uh, recently wrapped up. When I retired, it was still ongoing, and there's still, I think, some prosecutions going on. It's pretty much on the tail end. Yeah. But there were millions of, or not millions, there was numerous auction houses looked at, numerous individuals. Um, we set up sting operations where we brought in people that were helping us mm -hmm. um, and set up buys and sales and lots of cash was exchanged for that rhino. It was quite amazing how much money people were willing to pay. Um, I was quite fortunate to be part of a team that got to arrest a bad guy in a casino in Vegas. Oh, yeah. Um, on the on the floor, on the casino floor. And it was all doing a deal upstairs in a motel room. It's just like drugs. It's exactly like drugs. You know, stuff being brought in from California to be sold in Vegas, you yeah. know, to, to potential buyers and wholesalers. So... Um, the money, there isn't a state in this beautiful country that we live in that doesn't struggle with funding for their wildlife operations, their law enforcement, their programs. You know, it's it's been a problem forever is funding because it's licensed dollars that feed. And then how the federal government works is through two acts called the Pittman-Robertson Act and the Dingle-Johnson Act. 
One is for fishing license, fishing licenses and equipment, and another one is for hunting equipment. There's a portion that you guys get I, taxed. I'm having trouble not laughing. Did you say Dingle Johnson? That's exactly <laughs> right. These were senators, by the way. The child in me has just <laughs> yeah. come out when you I said that. I saw the was... devil horns come out of your skull just now. <laughs> oh, but that's where the money comes well, from. Well, yeah, these were senators that brought forth legislation through 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 federal government. They saw the need, and this is back in the 30s. Yeah. They saw the need to protect wildlife. Obviously, it came from marketing days, um, and then it proceeded through. And so that's license or that's taxes put on hunting and fishing equipment. That money is then doled out to the states based on population for projects of wildlife restoration and such. So the bigger states get the bigger share of the money because they have the higher populations. But at the same time... It's not enough money. Yeah. And really, if you talk to a game warden, he ain't doing it for the money. She ain't doing it for the money. She's doing it for the love of the resource because these people, just like I did, believe you can make a difference. And they can and they do every day in their respective districts and their respective states. They do a phenomenal job. Um, it's like right now, you know, look at the push on law enforcement. There's so much going on in law enforcement right now. Um, with the chaos in our country, there's a lot of pressure being put on. That resource has got pressure. Those game wardens have got pressure. They see general crimes that would astound you. Um, they're out there by themselves. You know, we talked earlier about backups and, you know, teams. And, yeah, there's contingency plans and stuff, but it's not near what it should be. What what uh, uh, What's the closest you've come to where you were shitting your pants, you thought you weren't going to, like bad things were about to happen? Um, <laughs> I don't know how to quite answer that because, you know, it's like you serving in the military. You swear an oath and this is what you're going to do. Was I scared at times? Yeah. Was there times that I was said, you're a game warden? Sure. We did a, a deal in, in Colorado that started out with a request from the Division of Wildlife, um, on Dinosaur National Monument. Mm -hmm. And what it was was an outfitter who was actually taking people inside a Dinosaur National Monument to hunt those giant bulls, right? We're yeah. looking at Unit 1, 2, 201 two, bulls, and we all want that tag, right? Yeah. And uh, those bulls were being hammered by one outfitter, and a piece of property was purchased by a wealthy individual in Texas specifically to go in there and hunt those animals. Yeah. And so we went into that property. We went into that property and started investigating it. And what this guy did is the agencies that were involved were the National Park Service, the Division of Wildlife, and then the Fish and Wildlife Service. And um, the guy was running intel again. He was checking us out, seeing who were there. He was actually finding out when the park rangers were working, and he knew sometimes some of the schedules. Yeah. And um, so he would take people in there. He actually called it the boys club. He would charge people $10,000 to go in and hunt on a national monument. No kidding. That's per crazy. Guy. Now, was there any time where you, when I say, you know, you, you may hunt for 20 years and at some point in time, there's probably a point you're stuck on a cliff and you don't know if you're going to make it home. Did you have times like that or were you pretty good where you were never really jammed up that bad? Um. It was a few times that it was, you know, you know, am I coming home? I worked in British Columbia 
and we worked the inlets. Um, and this guy, this outfitter was had one of the biggest guy territories in British Columbia. His father started the business. It was a phenomenal business. And he started cutting corners. Yeah. And basically offered us his grizzly tags. Um, and the interesting thing was, is he was jumping across the inlet into the United States and killing grizzlies on Tongass National Park. Oh, man. And, and it's, you know, up there, you know how big that country is, yeah. right? And you go run those inlets, you can run it for days and not see another boat. The thing was that made it interesting was is we didn't have the technology then that we do today. You know, cell phones, sat phones, all that sort of stuff where you can talk to your wife and tell her how your day was when you're at 12,000 feet. Yeah. Um, so it would – it would have been not very difficult had that outfitter known who we were to dump us over the side into the ocean. Yeah. And we would have never been seen again. We'd have been crab bait. Yeah. Um, did it concern us? Sure. But you, we're highly trained, highly motivated, and we take care of each other. You know, it's no different than um, when you work on a cert team or a tactical team. Your guy that you're going into that room with is your guy and he's got your back and it's the same thing there. Plus, I, I, I believe in a higher power. I always think he was always looking out for me. Yeah. Yeah. You're a very spiritual man. Um, and I know, uh, I, I'm sad. I don't say I know. Did you, is that lifelong or was that somewhere in the midst of throughout your career? You, uh, thought there was an angel watching over your shoulder. Um, well, you know, I'm raised in northern New Mexico, so a strong Catholic background. I grew up with my grandparents who practiced Catholicism with the old saints, the santos. You know what I'm talking about. And so I was given a very good base foundation. Frank has no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I was hoping he was my people and he was going to get that, but he didn't. My, my grandparents on the, my mom's side are from New from New Mexico, same thing, yeah. same, very religious people. Right. Yeah. So I was given a base foundation <laughs> by my, my family, and I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. My summers were there. That's where I learned my love of wildlife and, and that sort of stuff as well. And then as I moved on um, through life, you know, I worked out with a workout partner when I was bodybuilding, and he brought me to the Lord. Yeah. And then from there, it just, it's a walk. It's not a run, and it's a series of everyday things that you do to, after I retired, two things I wanted to do was do something in this industry that I love so much, the wildlife industry and the hunting industry, but also I wanted to give back. And so um, it wasn't my idea. A friend said, you ever thought about being a chaplain? And I said, no, I'm a sinner. Yeah. And he kind of chuckled just like you did. And he said, hey, you have a lot of experience. And where my heart is, is for uh, rural law enforcement. Mm -hmm. um, I have a heart for law enforcement in general, obviously, but here I pick up the phone and I have an issue with a bad guy. I got tons of help. It really, you're it sometimes. Yeah. Your backup's two or three hours away, even if you have backup. If you're in the backcountry and you have a problem with an individual, let's say, you know, I had a guy that lived under a tree stump in Jamez, New Mexico, and he was killing wildlife. And he was a self-proclaimed mountain man. Yeah. And the intel on him was he had a forty-five, and he would kill anybody that got close to him. Yeah. And we rode up on horseback and got him arrested. Uh, scary stuff. But to my spiritual side, now my heart is as a chaplain for rural law enforcement and trying to support those guys that are out there holding that line. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I see it every day because you try and help me keep my shit together from day to day to day, whether not meaning breaking the law, but mm-hmm. just one calming down and taking some stress off of my life for sure. So, well, I tell you, we we probably should cut this short because we've been talking a hell of a lot longer than I thought. And uh, we actually got to be in a meeting here in a little bit. Um, do you have anything else that we I know we could talk for probably 10 hours straight, but anything else you want to touch on for this go around? We can get you on again for sure. Oh. I would just say the biggest things to take away from the last couple of hours of talking would be really reach out to your local game warden, reach out to your wildlife agency, establish a relationship. Uh, They're not the enemy, Mm -hmm. Um, even though sometimes it might feel like it by some. They're really not. They're there to help. You're their customer. Um, And we all have the same goal in mind is to protect the resource. And we can consume it, but we can still protect it. So reach out to those guys. Gotcha. And definitely keep get your kids out in the – in the outdoors and introduce them to uh, whether it be archery or rifle hunting or fishing, getting them in the outdoors, which I'm learning more and more with, with my daughter. Things could have gone a totally different way where she may live in the city. She may not take it as a lifelong, uh, you know, I'd say career, but, you know, she may not fish and hunt the rest of her life. But she understands it. She understands where it's coming from and she understands the idea behind it. So definitely, we don't bring that up enough, but definitely, I don't think any of us would be here if somebody did us, didn't get us in the outdoors as a kid. So focus on that as well. So, Aaron, I want to add to that because you bring up something that really we talked a lot about is mentorship. And I mm-hmm. think that's what you're talking about mm-hmm. as you're alluding to mentorship. And yes, mentor your family, get them in the outdoors. But re- those of us who've been in, in the wildlife law enforcement background or the industry promoting the products that are out there. It's just phenomenal what's out there, what you're able to utilize. But really, we have a huge responsibility to mentor those who come into our archery shops, our gun ranges, to take them in the outdoors. They don't have to kill anything. They have to just look at it and Mm -hmm. utilize it. And mentoring is a huge thing for me. I think that we need to mentor more people. And I think once you mentor them and they understand what, what wildlife is and the business that we're in, I think people will really revere that wildlife and it'll be protected more. Yeah, no, I agree. Tank, you got anything? No, I don't. Thank you, Leo, for coming by. Absolutely. I, I think the mentoring thing is, is very important. I took a couple of my buddies out a few years ago, Zach and Clinton, and now those guys, they love hunting and stuff like that. So I think I think that is huge and that's something that's not done as much as it, as it was, you know, parents aren't taking their kids out in the wild, into the wild or, you know, into the forest or whatever. And there's stuff that, we get to see that people don't even know exists. So I, I want to say this one last thing, and I promise I'll stop yapping. The most important gift we got is the gift of time because it's the least thing we have. We're all looking at our cell phones. There's hundreds of messages coming in every few hours. Your time is just being taken away minute by minute. But that's really the most important gift we got. So when we share that gift with somebody by taking them to the outdoors, you're really giving up a really valuable gift. And that gift, when you give it, is really cherished by those who really understand that gift. So give your gift of time. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, well, uh, we'll be, uh, I look forward to hearing everyone's feedback on this. I was excited to do it, and I'm, I'm even more excited now that we've finished up. Uh, for those of you game wardens listening in, um, I love you. If I've ever done anything wrong or about to do something <laughs> wrong, please show leniency on me. Um, but no, you guys, it's a thankless job, and uh, I definitely appreciate everything that uh, that game wardens out there uh, do every day because uh, it, it's certainly, I don't have the right temperament for the trade. I'd probably end up shooting someone. So, yeah, but... Uh, uh, on that note, thanks for tuning in and th- definitely thanks for coming on, Leo. Let's get you on here again. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me.